Hello, welcome to the East London Radio Private Lives podcast. This is Paul Robinson, and on today's show we meet Claire Rockus, cocktail maven extraordinaire and friend of Kenny Everett, as a result of which she got to be friends with Freddie Mercury. Plus, Peter Straker, who made his mark in hair and by chance also became close to Freddie. And finally, Heather Small, the stunning voice of M People and an icon for the LGBTQ plus community. Private Lives with Paul Robinson. So first to Clea Rockus. I asked her about her start in TV. My proper start really was when I started working with, with, with Kenny Everett. What happened was I was late for ballet class. Uh, once and uh, I was running across the, the playground and I was uh, 14, 15 but I looked a lot older and as I was in the leotard I was running across the playground and there happened to be a director there looking for um, it was a stage school looking for a um, person to play in, in a, a serious uh, sexy secretary in his series. Nice. This is Alan Bell who directed Last of the Summer Wine and lots of fabulous things and uh, he saw me run into the class. He came into the class and he asked the teacher, a ballet teacher, you know, permission to speak with me and then went through the agency of the school. And I ended up going to the BBC and playing this uh, small role. Um, when I arrived, I was in my school uniform because I was 14 and I was with a chaperone. Um, and he thought I was much older. Uh, so consequently, I never uh, got parts for my age. I was, you know going for older parts and then I wasn't really 20 but I always looked older I was quite a bumpy 14 year old and um, and uh, he said to me Alan said to me why didn't you come in the summer in your uh, summer holidays come and have lunch with me at the BBC and I'll introduce you and give you some names of agents who might be able to help you so I did, and I went in my civvies, not my school uniform, obviously. We had lunch, and sitting at another table was the fabulous Jim Moyer and um, Bill Wilson, who were just... Uh, Jim Moyer is the head of Light Entertainment, and they just brought Kenny, the Kenny Average show over from Thames Television, and they were going to start shooting that Christmas. And he came over to the table... He introduced himself and he said, oh, we're just starting the Kenny Everett show here. Would you like to come and audition? And I said, oh, yes, I'd love to. He said, you are 18, aren't you? I said, oh, yes, I absolutely Mine's am. Tooth, of course, <laughs> yes. And um, so I did. I went and auditioned and I, I did the Christmas show as one of the sort of earringy girls in, in the background in a little outfit. But I wanted to learn... Not the school uniform this time. Not the school uniform. No, actually, I went to my dressing room and I thought, oh, the BBC are terribly proper. They give you a full complement of underwear and, and stockings and everything. And I thought it was terribly, you know, thorough of them. And I waited in my dressing room for um, the dress to arrive, and it never did. They said, no, that is your outfit. So, <laughs> so I quickly got used to it. Um, but it was jolly, and it wasn't seedy, it wasn't sleazy, it was cartoonular. It was all very, very happy. There was never anything uncomfortable or unpleasant it was like us all being in a giant cartoon the crew and everyone we just lived in Kenny's cartoonular world what was it like when you first met Kenny can you remember that very first encounter with Kenny Everett I remember I was standing in the shadows um, of the studio and Kenny's costume he was playing the general the costume the epaulets had which, which had little guns in had malfunctioned so he had a team of special effects men screwing up things and bending bits of wire and it's a very very heavy costume and I remember him sitting slumped on a chair and he saw me 
I was in the corner, I was trying to watch and learn everything I could, and he beckoned me over and um, he introduced himself. He said, hi, I'm Ken, and I said, oh, I'm Cleo, and we, we chatted, and after a few minutes, he said, oh, finally, a fellow Martian. And really, a fellow Martian. And so you sort of click that much, that, that quickly? Very quickly. Very instant that, like that. It was just instant, and... And then we just... And then your part grew. He then invited you yes, to effectively to do some be sketches. his co-star, yes. to, and, and I remember, in a way, there was one sketch. Kenny was terrible at learning lines. He hated doing anything twice because he was a radio man. So he liked one go at it, and that was that. Uh, live and no scripts. So he would re- try and learn a script, and they would try and put bits in cupboard doors sometimes because if it was a long sketch. And we were in the middle of doing a sketch, one of my first sketches, and... Um, we got most of the way through it, and then he went to the wrong cupboard door and wrong, got the wrong line, and he looked at me and he said, are you stupid, bleeding cat? And I had to think of something quickly to get us out of the spot. And, and did that stay in? And, oh, God, you I can't remember. No, I can't, no, we only did it once, so it must have stayed in. And I had to think of something on the spot to get us out of the jam, and uh, Ray Cameron and Barry Cryer, who were writing the show, said... Oh, you can stay, you can stay, that's fantastic. Because you could add labour and you could handle And I would it. never let Kenny fall through a safety net. It was his show, so I was really con- conscious that, you know, I wanted to be there for him, so... And he would have picked up on that generosity yeah. well, by, by you. Well, we just, I would never, in real life, we'd, we'd be like that. He'd say something really slightly outrageous and he'd look at me in real life he'd be talking to people and say something and he'd realize something had fallen out of his mouth that oughtn't to have and he'd turn around and look at me and say Cleo do something and I'd take off my earrings and throw them across the room and say oh Kenny my earrings quick you know <laughs> it was it's just fun being with him and that spontaneity came across I mean you know watching it you know it was just fun it just felt like it was just joyful the whole time and it clearly was for you it was t- it was joyful for for everyone because we were all in it together it wasn't a crew and the stars or anything like that we'd have huge people who'd, who'd come to do the show um, uh, Sting came very early on when pol- police his band that were hu- absolutely huge and he wanted to do sketches but we'd all queue up for coffee nobody sent their people to do anything nobody came in but everyone was just it was just like a big wonderful jolly club and everyone would just get on on and off screen it wasn't you hardly knew when the cameras were filming or not you got to know Kenny very well indeed yes we we lived very near one another and we just because of that we'd travel in and out and Kenny would always give me a lift in his car to the studio and back and and we just spent time together even when we were filming the the BBC cafeteria then really smelt like a school lunch room so Kenny would say come on Cleve let's go out and have lunch you know and we'd have an hour for lunch and often the makeup people would say you know you've got to get back with complicated makeup and rubbery bits you know for the characters stuck on our faces and things and say make sure you come back in an hour and I'd say to Kenny we'd be having lunch and he'd having a cocktail or two and I'd say to Kenny I think we ought to get back to the studio uh, they they need us for all the prosthetics that they're going to do and he'd say why they can't start without us let's have another cocktail and he wasn't being rude or awful he was just having a nice time in the moment he lived in the moment so then teams of people would come from the studio looking for us and then quite often he'd convince them to sit down and have a cocktail and so it would be quite a late start back from lunch um, but 
all very easy. Nobody was thrown in BBC jail or anything. <laughs> well, that's good to hear because the BBC hadn't been quite so kind to him earlier in his career when, of course, yeah. he was actually fired from the BBC. Um, as, a, as a DJ, of course, he was used to going in the studio, playing all this amazing stuff he'd worked on in his home studio and being, you know, one of the most creative DJs ever, I would say. Yes. Um, how did he adapt to television? Because, as you were saying, you know, radio is very instant of the moment. He can decide what to do next. He doesn't need a big crew around him. How did he adapt to TV, which is very different? Well, radio was definitely his first love. And he could go into the studio. He had a studio at home. And he would just sit in there and twiddle. And, and he would, in the days where uh, they spliced, they, so you'd, it would be on tape as well. And he liked doing that and just cutting it, whereas now everything's digital. And he would love that too. He loved technology. Um, he adapted. I think he just thought of... TV as radio with pictures. He went to it just as if he was going to work at the radio. He just he just went to it with the same energy. That he couldn't bear makeup. He hated sitting in the makeup and having things stuck on him. And um, he hated all the glue. He couldn't bear the glue. Uh, but he had a beard, of course, too. So it, it must have been very painful. Yeah, he was. He did always have that sort of sticky glue. But actually, his beard disappeared in so many characters. He forgot he even had a beard. But um, he loved he loved the cartoonular side of it. So he's, the whole you know radio having pictures. So he thought of it more as radio having pictures rather than television. If if that makes any sense at all. No, it makes absolute sense because he was brilliant at painting pictures on the radio as well as on on TV. You got very close, and in fact, you actually got engaged. But then he called it off. No, I called it off. You called it off. No, not really called it off. Uh, that's the wrong thing to say. I was. It was so lovely. We had adored each other for so long, and it was just so wonderful. We'd travelled around the world together. We'd had every bongly and gleeful adventure, um, and he just. We just wanted to be with one another. So. I mean, the reason I called... I said called it off sounds really... I could see... We'd been engaged for about four and a half days. And I could see... Suddenly people were starting to hear about it. And there people calling and wanting interviews and things. And um, starting to ask... It was a real pressure on him being gay. And what was he doing marrying a straight girl? He was gay. And, you know, that sort of... We, we lived in our own on our own little planet in many ways. So we had our, what worked for us was just wonderful. But as soon as the outside people started coming, I could see him starting to look a bit crushed and a little bit as if he was going to be made to feel a failure for for being... Do you think he was fearful of that? Do you think he was fearful that as a gay man it might not work out and he didn't want maybe to let you down? No, I think we knew what we had already. But it was being judged by people who weren't really, I want to say... qualified to to judge our relationship really you know everyone's relationship is private and nobody's qualified to judge anyone's relationship um so i could see that in his face so i said to him we went for lunch and i said oh kenny why don't we um we're we're so fabulous anyway I, i sort of feel we're beyond marriage so why don't we were having an engagement party so he said but we're having an engagement party i said well let's have an unengagement party everyone can still come and and nothing has changed. We 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 know it, it all works as it is, so we don't need to 
do anything. Did you have the party? Yes, we did. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Kenny was gay at a time when it wasn't mainstream to no. be gay. I mean, he was, you know, he was just a bit too um, early, really, in terms yes. of you know, gay being accepted. How did he feel about his sexuality? He'd been brought up as, um, um, you know, Catholic, too. So that he'd always felt uh, that guilty and and judged by you know superior power and even though he he left his catholicism when he was dying i think if it's if it's if you're born with the catholic upbringing i think it sort of comes around when he was dying he he would call me and say okay you know do you think you know god will have me in heaven do you think I'll make it there and I said oh don't be so ridiculous I said you know he's made you and and the worst thing is is that you know he wants you there for himself when we still want you here you know I would try and make light of it it was really tortured him I think we all felt that I mean loss of a fantastic uh, person far too far too young yeah and there's some people who in your one knows throughout life who, who when they die you sort of think oh okay not okay but somehow you can come to terms with it more easily but Kenny I think people like Kenny and definitely Kenny and Freddie and Amy Winehouse and and Michael Jackson and so many people that you think no you're still here somehow they're still you still expect to see them coming around the corner unfortunately they work injured so we can still endure their work that's the good news yes and there's got to be some absolutely magnificent cocktail room up there somewhere where they're all spinning on stools and <laughs> sharing cocktails I you're choosing the cocktails because you're the cocktail person supreme, of course. We'll talk more about <laughs> cocktails later. So um, let's talk about some of the parties now because you had some amazing times and, I mean, gosh, the names. I mean, Princess Diana, Freddie Mercury. So, you know, ha- there's, there's maybe, maybe a story or two about some of those amazing parties. Well, it's... Now you know when you're living it, it's just your every sort of every day. What's normal? And I realized I knew also at the time it was such a special, such a planet full of such sort of iconic talent in that that era. So we just had a lot of fun all the time. We had you know, parties and we went out, and there were wonderful places to go out in in London. I mean, there still are, but it. We just we just somehow just be out having a wonderful time the whole time. You're listening to Podcast Radio. How did you manage to go out with Princess Diana? And, um, you know, how does she escape from the palace? And how did you disguise the fact you're with her? Surely someone would recognise you and the game would be up. Well, it's, what's really strange about um, Princess Diana is that she used to actually leave the palace rather a lot. She used to queue even in, in um, McDonald's in Kensington High Street. For, Seriously? Yeah, she'd go in in a baseball cap and nobody, you would never expect to be standing by somebody. She loved that. She would go to cinema, she'd do all sorts of things. And, and not badly, but she just wanted a real life. So we would meet every so often. We met many times at uh, big functions that were charity functions. And, um, you know, we, we'd end up meeting and, and chatting. And she was a big fan of the Kenny Everett show. And um, so was Prince Charles, but Diana was sort of a, 
you know a little bit more into the music that we were into and everything and um, so we'd meet every so often for a, sort of a jolly lunch and swap all the showbiz gossip for all the palace gossip and could you find a restaurant to go to where you weren't recognized where she wasn't recognised. I mean, well, you were on TV, you're famous. Yes, I know. Can't we huge... three of you are all pretty famous. Well, this, we would go, yes, we would go to places, even if people recognised it, it didn't, you know, there were places such as San Lorenzo and the Ivy, and also, um, and also um, Bombay Brasserie. Oh, famous Bombay, Bombay Brasserie in South Kensington. Yes, yes. And we're, we're, we go, and she, you know, she'd obviously been there before because we were meeting her on this particular day, and she... We were just about to have a glass of, you know, Kira Oil. She said, "No, no, no, let's have a peach bellini. They do great peach bellinis here." And she wasn't a big, big drinker, but we we'd have a, a cocktail and a chat. And she loved hearing everything that was going on in show business. She was a young woman who was into music. She loved Duran Duran. She loved all the music and the fashion that was going on at the time. So. To have an insider story from inside the studios was she couldn't lap it up enough, and we would laugh and laugh at lunch. Didn't she also uh, enter a club, a gay club, disguised as a boy? Yeah. Well, we we took we this particular lunch. Normally, she'd go back after about an hour and a half. But this particular lunch, we all went back to Kenny's house, and Kenny lived at the time in Lexham Gardens, which is very near Kensington Palace. And we went in, and that night, Kenny, Freddie, and I um, were going. This is Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury, yeah. We were going um, to uh, the Vauxhall Tavern, or the Royal Vauxhall Tavern. And if I went, Freddie wouldn't necessarily bring his um, sort of, uh, I want to not say bodyguard, but somebody there, because he never knew, you know. So if I went, I could sort of, he'd say, oh, I like the look of him over there, and I'd totter over and say, oh, do you want to come and meet my friend? You know, in a sort of a dark club. That's <laughs> they realise the friend was the famous Freddie Mercury. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> so, so did that spook them, actually? When, when, when a man came across and realised it was Freddie, did they, did they go, oh, my goodness? Or did they... not, not really, because Kenny and Freddie, you know, I mean, the, the, we would all go out a lot, and, and for a girl to be in a lot of the, the, the gay bars was fabulous because there was never any problem, and I was quite a useful tool. <laughs> I could... I could pimp for him. <laughs> In a nice way. In a nice way. And so, and so um, this particular, I went back and made some, um, carried on some champagne cocktails. Kenny had put on the Gypsy Queens. And when I came out of the kitchen, which is on the same level, he had a penthouse, so the top floor was a living room and a kitchen. When I came out of the kitchen with my little tray of cocktails, there they were, Kenny and Princess Diana, dancing around his living room. He had a collection of um, feather dusters that looked like dehydrated Vegas dancers, so really elaborate feathers. And they were dancing around to the Gypsy Queens and both kicked off their shoes. And it was just just wonderful. It was just a happy moment. I can just picture the whole thing. It sort of outdoes the birdcage. Yeah, it is a little bit. It, it, it is a little bit like that. And so we'd always watch, before we went out, our routine, Kenny and I, was always to watch the um, Golden Girls, which he had recorded. Um, so we were there, we were chatting, and we were going to go out uh, for an early evening. So Kenny called up Freddie and said, Freddie, you've got to come over. Di's here. We're going to watch the Golden Girls. And uh, so we sat down and watched the Golden Girls. Freddie came over. We watched the Golden Girls all... We turned the voice down and did our own characters and so our own voices. So you've got Clear Ruckus, Kenny Everett, Princess Diana and Freddie Mercury sitting on a sofa all watching the Golden Girls. Yeah. And it seems odd now, but it was just... 
just it just happened <laughs> and so um diana as i said she loved fashion and things she, she asked so what are you wearing tonight kenny kenny my brother had been a war photographer in el salvador and he'd given me his camouflage um, jacket kenny wanted to borrow it because it was really sort of soldiery looking so kenny was going to wear that um, and Diana went, said, oh, show me. And so Kenny put it on, and she said, oh, can I try it on? And down the floor was Kenny's bedroom. There were four bedrooms there. And outside Kenny's bedroom in the corridor was a mirror so he could check himself before he went off. So we stood in front of the mirror with Diana in the jacket. He had a chest, a wooden chest behind, um, behind there uh, with all his hats and things. We put a leather cap on her. Freddie gave her a pair of aviators she put those on we tucked all her hair up under the hat and she pulled the collar of the camouflage jacket up and we said wow you just look fantastic because she was uh, 5'11 and we were all Kenny and I were 5'7 and Freddie is 5'9 so she was tallest of us all and so the jacket looked amazing on her and she just looked like a young male model and she said um Oh, I want to come with you. I want to come with you tonight. And Kenny said, you can't come with us. No, no, it's, it's a gay club and it's a big hairy men and sometimes they're fights. He said, and I can just see the headlines tomorrow morning. Future Queen of England dies in gay bar brawl. He said, you can't come. And Freddie said, oh, let the girl have some fun. And so we really? took her. We took her. She said, just as long as it takes to walk in, order a glass of wine and come out. Well, when we got there, there was some special show on. I don't know if it was Lily Savage or something, but it was packed. And we were walking like school kids, nudging each other and laughing. And nobody even... They obviously looked, saw Diana, but she was in her aviators and everything. But they just thought she looked like a very beautiful young male model. And um, it wasn't unexpected with Kenny and Freddie and our, our group. We know we often went out all lots of beautiful looking people together um, and um, they um, she ordered a drink and we left we took her back in the cab to Kensington Palace she stayed in her outfit so that the cab driver wouldn't rumble we dropped her at the, the, the gates there at the security and, and um, the next day she sent round the clothes with a note saying We've just had a fabulous time, and we must do it again soon. How fantastic! I bet Prince Charles never knew a thing. Yeah, but I bet he never knew. No, I, I didn't. I think she she was she loved that sort of mischief, and I think that's the sort of mischief Kenny had too. You know, Kenny recognised, and she recognised in all of that. We all loved our job. She she didn't really. She was a happy person. The thing is that people always think, oh, she's so sad, and she's a, we. She was the funniest. She was absolutely radiant we laughed and laughed she had a great sense of humor always a joke always a really witty comments and she was not how people have always been given to think she is she wasn't such she was genuinely a happy person it's a fantastic story and it sounds like an amazing night and it's really good to hear that she had good times like that because I know she had some very tough times too. A fantastic eight years with Kenny but I like all things, uh, good things come to an end and after eight years the show um, you know, came to the end of its natural uh, life. What did you do next after the Kenny Everett television show? Well, as the 90s loomed and, and came to be there was um, a new era of alternative comedy which was a completely different 
and a lot of it was alternative to comedy. <laughs> Not funny, you mean? Well, it just very aggressive and very... But Ben Elton well, epitomised it, maybe. Well, ben, ben Elton's a super clever man yeah. and a super wonderful... Uh, it was aggressive, wasn't it? It was a very right, much in-your-face type style. Yeah, there were lots of... Yeah, it was, it was, very, it was very different and, and, and things do change and things um, are different. Um, but it wasn't sort of TV we love doing and a lot of things that I was asked to do are shows and uh, it weren't things that I was really What's the things you asked to do you turned down? Oh God, I don't know. Uh, sort of, um, I don't know, strange, strange new shows that they were trying, they were experimenting with, you know, really and... and uh, you did do a lot of shows. I mean, you, you did you did James Well on Late Night TV, yeah, yeah. you did Gary Bushell, you did Ready Steady Cook, Blankety Blank. Yeah, those sort of shows that were, was, you know, they were still sort of going on. There were people who, who, uh, you know, that it, it wasn't that sort of uh, aggression uh, on the TV. And I don't know what I did a travel show. I did. A, I had my own travel series afterwards called Clear Worldwide, where I took fabulous people anywhere they wanted to go on the planet, and we'd chat. <laughs> oh, that sounds like good times. So give me a couple of examples. And who did you take where? Let's get, let's well, get we an example. We took Julian Clary to Rio de Janeiro. Oh, did you? Okay, yeah. well, that's his first time in Rio. Yes, and we, we had fantastic time. And because I was producing the show, um, I, I didn't... I just did every, My school of TV is Kenny, so I just like to go along and see what will happen a bit. And I know that. <laughs> and, and I think to get the best out of people, you don't want to really stifle them so we'd have a, incredible and fabulous interviews with wonderful people who wouldn't normally be as open and um, in, in wonderful locations and I just think well when it's dark it's better to have a, a cocktail after dark and film during the day so if we worked hard I thought we ought to play hard and it worked terribly well as a concept <laughs> and did you have the Pete Bellinis in Rio de Janeiro? no we didn't we had the Caipirinhas there um but so that was Julian in Rio. We took um, Terry Venables to the Seychelles. Okay, that's very different. Yes, actually, I wanted eclectic people. Nikki Haslam to Argentina, where I was kidnapped in the cab, which was very exciting. Oh, okay. So let's have that story. What happened then? Well, we went uh, filming in Argentina in Buenos Aires, uh, and Nikki Haslam, who uh, you know, if you're, all your listeners don't know, he's one of the top interior designers, but he's one of the most stylish men ever and uh, he's got a following from sort of 16 year olds up upwards he's he's an incredible man and um terribly funny and uh, well we were filming and he wanted to go into a shop uh, and it was terribly hot so we were with the head of the tourist board there and and there was he arranged a cab so he said well why don't you wait in the cab in the air conditioning while you know Nikki and the director come out of the shop there'll be a few minutes and you can stay cool I got in the cab and the cab took off and oh. and it was it was and I told him to you know no not to take off just to stay there that would be what you know just I needed to stay there and he just went faster and faster and Nikki Haslam's friends who live in Buenos Aires said all cabs look the same from the outside but in unless there's a serial number on the back of the driver's seat don't get in. Don't get in. I hadn't stopped this cab 
tourist board man had and there was no serial number on the back of the seat and I thought oh I hope you know this could be a bit tricky and the more I tried to get him to stop he then started hitting me and I thought okay I know that's Physically not hitting right you. yes over the back of the chair and I thought I know that's, that's unusual not. for a cab driver that is unusual say, yes. for a cab driver <laughs> <laughs> and so and I don't know how much of this story I should tell you because I might end up anyway um I always carry a penknife in my handbag, okay. usually for the corkscrew. And sometimes when we're a small crew, there's got a screwdriver on when the tripod wobbles and things. So, um, but the cab driver wasn't stopping, and he was going faster. And Kenny's, uh, Kenny, sorry, Nicky's friends had told us that what they do is they take you to a certain street, and two other people jump in on either side, and you know you never know what the result might be. So I thought I was very cross because I thought everyone's going to not know what happened to me and it's going to be a strain on everyone to think, well, what happened? And I was very cross that somebody was trying to steal me and he wouldn't stop. So I took out my knife and I put it to his neck and I said, stop the cab now. And he could see that I had a knife there. This isn't my normal way of behaving, but, uh, you know, it was him or me. And so um, he wouldn't stop. So I gave him a jab and And I was wearing a white... Caused him to stop. And I, I was wearing a white dress, and all, all the strange thoughts go through and think, oh, I hope they're not child locks. So I got out, and there were no child locks. And I'm thinking, I can't get anything on my dress because we're filming. It's just a bizarre, strange, slow motion and fast motion thought. And I just ran as fast as I could in the opposite direction, convinced he was going to pull me down in the street. And he never did. And you survived. And did the I did the white dress get speckled red or not? No, I, I managed. <laughs> Good BBC training. <laughs> <laughs> BBC training. There you go. <laughs> Never to let anything say. No, no, I didn't. But it, it happens quite regularly there. Apparently, it, well, it happened to, to me careful. actually. I was in Buenos Aires. I was working did for the Walt Disney it's Company. Probably the same man. Yeah, well, it may be the same man, but I solved it a different way. I solved it with uh, a wash of, of money rather than with oh, the knife, you? and that that solved the problem. I didn't have any hard cash on me. Oh, you see, always carry a few dollars. Yeah, you're right, you're right. You I never know, it gets you had all sorts of problems. But it's, it makes you so cross that somebody's trying to steal you. I, I got I was so annoyed, furious. Yeah. I, didn't, I wasn't scared, but I was furious. And I was thinking, if this goes very more badly wrong, then it's going to be tricky. I was more concerned I was going to be late for my meeting. How wrong is that <laughs> rather than my <laughs> safety? <laughs> And I ran back in the complete opposite direction, sort of exhilarated. It's exhilarating when you get out. I can't pretend, you know, I wasn't scared. I was exhilarated. I I can't, I have to tell someone. And I ran, holding my knife in front of me. And as I ran, and it just happened to keep, I I kept running, kept running. And I ended up at the corner somehow where everyone was looking for me. And they said, we knew you'd been kidnapped. And the director said, look, oh, my God, let's go back to the hotel. You, you can go back, you can rest. I said, I can't rest. I'm charged up. I need up. a cocktail. Yes. Well, Nikki Haslam said, darling, I know the best apre-kidnap cocktail. Let's have an Americano. And was that, that the job? You had a yes, few of those, course, I Yeah, we did. <laughs> and then stumbled around the Recoleta. So, obviously, in all your travels, I guess Buenos Aires, Argentina is not your favourite place in the world. What is your favourite place in the world? I mean, when you've travelled so many places. Oh, I... Oh, there's so many favourite places, but I I I, uh, I love Greece, I love Greece, and 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 I love uh, Mexico. Uh, Mexico's it's got a really a, you know a very um, bad rap a lot of the time, and some of it is justified if people are in the drugs industry. Um, and it's not to say that they're not 
occasional kidnappings there too. But I've been to Mexico, going to Mexico for 16 years and never touched wood, had a problem. I went to Buenos Aires once and it happens. And it happened to you too in Buenos Aires. So, so stick with Mexico then, stick I guess. With Me- the loveliest people, beautiful weather. And, and it just sometimes, you and it's the same with Greece, you step off a plane and you feel that you, you're, you're absolutely breathing history and... and and it's just very much more obvious there and as it is in Greece as well. There's something just very special about the light, the people, the earth, uh, the, the culture. Uh, it's totally different from one another, but you, you feel something you, that you're somewhere very special. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, more about cocktails now. The, the cocktails keep on cropping up in our conversation. You know, the Peach Bellinis, the Kia Royale, you know. The, so you're, you're now uh, an expert in, in cocktails and spend a lot of your time talking about cocktails and encouraging people to make really fab cocktails. I created my own tequila brand in, in 2012. And once, uh, uh, well, I launched it in 2012. I created it in 2011. And I spent a long time... When you're creating something from scratch, you, you get very much to learn about alcohol, you, you know, the, the levels, the methanol, the, uh, the topping and tailing, all, all the you technicalities. You methanol now, very, very technical. Yeah, now. ethanol yes. and methanol levels and, yes. and everything. And you, you're going through the whole process. So with cocktails, I, I, but people, and I was one who didn't realise Firstly, how fattening some of them can be. And secondly, anything... Oh, which are the worst then? Which are the oh, worst, most fattening ones? Anything that's got sugar syrup, liqueurs, any, anything that's got sugar in it, basically. Anything right. with sugar. So and name a couple then, maybe. Oh, I don't know. Um, pina colada is quite, quite, okay. quite yeah. um, uh, fattening. It depends on how... You can have a margarita, it's which... It's not affected you. Look, you've got no a fantastic one, figure. There's absolutely none of fat on you. are ravishing. How much do I adore you? Well, you are gorgeous looking. There's no answer fat so lovely. So, so avoid the fattening ones. Avoid, yeah. Yeah, but avoid sugar. Right, avoid sugar. sugar. And I spent um, a long time out of just wanting to, you know, to find alternatives. And organic... I created an organic agave syrup, which is a natural alternative so if you take sugar out of anything obviously it's going to lessen calories does um, it not taste so good either that's it, the trouble isn't it, it sugar no sugar makes good. it no, um, the uh, organic agave syrup absolutely amplifies flavor and it's the third sweeter so you automatically use a third less it's um you don't use uh, you know it, it, uh, insulin it's tiny tiny bit compared so it's very diabetic friendly for a lot of uh, diabetics and and it's completely natural so the difference with, with sugar is once you once you, you crave more and more and and you can have a lovely cocktail you can have a margarita i can make you a margarita that's just got fresh lime you know my acariva tequila and my acariva organic agave syrup and the calories will be less uh, less than half than a margarita that's got Cointreau or triple sec or sugar syrup or margarita mixer. It's, you've got to keep everything natural, natural and and away from sugar. And your favourite cocktails then? Which are the one, Which well, are your top I, five? My my, my favourite cocktail is 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 a margarita made just with three ingredients: fresh lime, organic agave syrup, and and 100% agave tequila. And that's the other thing: tequila. When people have a terrible experience on tequila, it's because it's not. 100% agave. It's made from the agave plant. So if it's not 100% agave, it's mixed with, you know, f- flavorings and colorings. It's going to make you feel like you're on a bobsleigh to hell. A bobsleigh to hell. You don't want that. There's no point in going <laughs> no. out and. But but I tell you where I love having um, 
cocktails. And I don't know if you've been there yet, but it is the most fabulous place in Wapping called oh, okay. the Skylight. The Skylight, right. Skylight. It, it, it's so cool. You go up, it's, it's through, it's in a, um, an old, what is it, an old, it's a parking lot, disused parking lot. But on the top, they've got uh, restaurants, lots of different places to eat, uh, different sort of foods. And then you go right up to the top and you've got the most incredible view of London. You've got the best cocktails there and the happiest bunch of people you could ever wish to meet. Sounds amazing. I so go the there Skylight in Wapping is Skylight. the place. Yeah, go to the Skylight in Wapping. And it, it's, it's so close to here. It, and it's, if you haven't been there, you're missing out. All right, we definitely must uh, go there. That sounds amazing. So you now demo cocktails and help people to make cocktails. How do those sort of evenings go when you, when you, when you do one of your shows? Well, I think um, it's, just, it's a matter of knowing, you know, and I didn't know so much. Uh, I, I, I love learning interesting things. When I first started, I, re- I didn't know that gin was really vodka with botanicals added. I, I never knew that. I thought gin was a completely different thing. So... It's it's learning things and, and people want to know where what they're drinking and what they're eating comes from. They want the provenance and the authenticity, and they don't want to just eat something or drink something. I mean, some some cocktails are you know four or five hundred calories. So you know, and I, you know, if I well, four of those and that's your daily food intake. Gone, well, exactly, four or five of those. exactly. So it's just a matter, and and I hate hangovers. I hate. I still want to wake up the next morning feeling like the favourite version of myself. I think if you... I love that. The favourite version of myself. And, you know, we all, <laughs> we all, we all get to that point after a, one or two yeah, we cocktails. Do. We, do. we Actually, I'm not such a bad person. Oh, no, let's have another one. I'm feeling fabulous. And, um, and you know, and if you have to pay... I don't mind paying the bar bill, but I don't want to pay with the next day of my life as well. That's too expensive. Yes, there's too much to fit in, isn't there? It's too much to fit in. There are outfits to wear, places to go, things to do, more cocktails to have. Clear Rockers, thank you very much. Thank you very much. I've loved every second. The wonderful, bubbly Cleo Rockers on cocktails, Kenny Everett and Freddie Mercury. And still with Freddie, Peter Straker came to know the Queen frontman extremely well, but the relationship was not without its dramas. I asked Peter to tell me about his first encounter with him. We met in a restaurant in the Fulham Road. And why were you both in the same restaurant? By sheer accident. I think he was with John Reed, who was beginning to, to, to work with Queen, and I was with David Evans, who was managing me at the time. And it was just... He was at the end of the restaurant, we came up... And we all said hello. I'd, I'd, I'd met John, I knew him quite well. So I said, hello, and this is Freddie Anderson. And we, it was literally that. And having had that first conversation, you, you know, you clicked quite quickly. What was it that made Well, I don't know if we quick, clicked. No, it wasn't quick, OK. I don't know. I don't know if we clicked or not. We just met. You just met. But, but what was that initial conversation then? What were you talking about? We just, hello, how nice to meet you, and that was it. That was it? Yes. OK, but then, OK, but it went on from there. Well, because what happened was after that... Um, it's a group of set of people. It's very difficult. To and you, in those days, we were all going into the same... It's in the 70s, in, in the same set of restaurants or clubs, and, and those same faces were turning. So, oh, I just remember, and that's, and, and that's how... It, so you and kept we, bumping into each other. We in kept the same bumping places. into each other, yes. Right. And, we, and then we started, we talked to each other and said, and say hello. Because so, Freddie was, to be fair, and we were all very shy. I was very shy. And people don't believe I'm very shy, but I am. And so I would never, I would sit down with her with all, and just go, mm, mm. no, but a couple of drinks in. And had Freddie had, um, had Queen had hits at this point? Were Queen becoming known? Well, I think they must have been quite well known. In, in, it was in 70, 
about 74, 75, so they were. They'd so already... before Bohemian Rhapsody, then? Yes, right. yes, so they must have been, yeah, they were quite... So they had Killer Queen and other things? They'd had, done, right. yes, yes, okay. yes, but I haven't, I haven't really, um, I haven't traced it exactly. You, you met repeatedly, and then, you know, you became much closer, I think. Yeah, we became pals, and then we started going out to dinner together with all of, some of his, all of his pals and some of my pals, and, and we just meet up and just go, you know, one or two, yeah. And that's how we, 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 we became friends. And was Freddie warm? I mean, was, it, was, he a, was he, you know, good company? Yeah. I, well, I, I've known him for 15 years, and if he wasn't, I, we wouldn't have been friends, I don't think. No, no, we got on very, very, very well. And, and, and basically like the same stuff. As Freddie became more and more successful, did, did he change? Did he really, um, you know, love the audience and love the attention he got? I presume we must all change. If we, I, I'm looking forward to that success at some stage. Not at that... Well, no, no, I think we must all, all change. It's, did you notice it? Not at the time, because it, you just get, went along. And I don't think... I didn't notice any specific change. I mean, there, there are days when we get... I use the word tetchy. Well, he was creative. And I get tetchy sometimes. So you and both got tetchy No, sometimes. no, it's nothing to do with creative. It's just sometimes you just get... We're in bad moods, but I think everybody's in a bad mood. It's human nature, isn't it? I, honest to God, honestly, Paul, I just think so. so I, I mean, you're a singer, he's a singer. He's an amazing front man. I mean, what was it about Freddie that just made him so charismatic? Because Queen are a great band, but without Freddie, they weren't really Queen. And they're not really Queen now, I think. Um, that's a very difficult question. That's why I asked Well, I, I don't know, because how do you... And this is not... I'm not being a politician. I will answer because How do you absolve a thing? But you, you've got two sets of things, or three sets, or, or a whole lot of sets of things. There's four people in a band, in, the, in their case. So what, when, they, when there's the demise of one person, what do those people do? Do they stop? Do they disown the name? Do they give up what they've been doing and they've been known to do all their lives? Or do you carry on? They have the Queen. Who is the same? The Who? There are two men of Who left, but they're still working on the Who. And everybody else, I don't know what you do. I don't know. I'm not in that position. I don't know. When Peter Straker is dead, he's dead. There's nothing else to do about that because there's no other people around who are in, in a band. Now, Freddie's gone. I, I, I think... Um, the boys, uh, they're still creative. Queen, Adam Queen Lam- is a, Adam a, a, Lambert is good. It's yes. just not quite the same. Well, no, you wouldn't expect him to be. Of course not. So it, it's just they're not replacing. It, 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 they're not replacing um, Freddie. They're just interpreting the songs in a different way. Paul Rogers, um, you know, he he toured with Queen at, at one stage. It's just a reinterpretation of the music, and I think if you're, good, it's like. Without saying it, it's it's like you know if um, um oh my goodness uh, Mozart or somebody none of that music should be played because he's not alive anymore. No, it's an interpretation, and you do it in in, in your own way. So it, it's just and and there is an appetite for from the public who want to hear these songs. Abba are the same, and and the the two boys, the two original boys, who are still there. They're still there and they're playing and, they're, and then they played the drums and things and why not? And they wrote a lot of the songs and they wrote them together. So it's okay. I, Freddie's gone. I don't think it makes... You know, you just carry on the music and the spirit lives on. And I've seen a couple of their shows and 
and he's not forgotten. There, there are lots of stuff of him up there strutting, and, and it's, it's, it's lovely to see him. And you said 15 years uh, together, and you obviously got quite close. He didn't, though, tell you about HIV. He, there was some sort of blood disorder, you were told, which is obviously not the whole truth. It, it appears so. And what do you think the reason for that sort of discretion I was? have no idea. Did it upset you that we were no. told? But the, the relationship ended, I think, maybe less than ideally. I don't know about my relationship ending with him because I've ha- I had, um, I had um, discussions with uh, uh, Freddie's manager um, after that. And I just... It, it, listen... Life is what it is. We don't know why people do things or don't do things. I have no... I can honestly say I have no regrets about my relationship with him because that's the way it was. I was touring as well. I was away on tour endlessly um, doing Ken Hill's original Phantom of the Opera, which I, which, which, which I did. And um, it, it, it's... For the people living, like me, it might, be, it might appear to be unfortunate. But I'm very pragmatic about these things. And, and I really am, and I try to be, because I don't like to get over-sentimental. Sentimentality is a real cancer in its own way. And I refuse to be sentimental about it. So other people, that's their opinion, and I just go... Oh. Peter Straker there, talking about his own acting and singing career, and of course, Freddie. Next, to M People's Heather Small, whose powerful voice gave the band a standout sound, and with One Night in Heaven, a strong LGBTQ plus following. Heather was also one of those celebrities who decided to go on the BBC Strictly. I asked her about the experience. Do you know what? I met Brian Fortuna, who was my dance partner, who will be a friend for life. I'm going over to LA. He will be one of the people that I meet out there. Monday to Friday, absolutely loved it, because I love dancing. Saturday Night Live, that was something else again. Butterflies in the stomach? I, I was so nervous. He said to me, you're, you're the most nervous person I have ever, ever danced with. He said to me, how do you do, how do you do your, your, stage, your, show. your stage show? I said, it's taking me a long time and I still am really, really nervous. But it's all down to me. Yeah. And I'm not being judged. If somebody's at a show, they want to be there. I was really nervous. It was, um, it was a real challenge. What had happened, they'd asked me several times to do it, and I said no. But my mother and my sister are massive, massive fans, especially my mama. And they said, go on, girl, you've got to do it. That's right. And I always said no. But my sister got ill, and I said to her, if you get better from this, I promise you, I will do that show. She got better. They asked me, and I turned them down. And you still turn them down. What, no, they, and what t- do the researchers say when you say no? They go, oh, come on, come on. Are they, are they, no, they just accept you. Do they? Okay. And, but my sister and my mother won't accept they would, it. They, they wouldn't accept it. My sister said, I could see her look of disappointment. She just said nothing. And I thought, I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, I'm going to do it. So I did. Got ultra fit, made some lovely, lovely friends. Now I'm attending Karen Hardy's dance studio. So, you know, all good things came from it. But the Saturday night was awful. Because, you know, they decide who they like and they decide who can be a punch bag. And unfortunately, I was the latter. Oh, that's so, a shame. It was a shame. It was a shame. So um, 
people would say certain things on camera and then tell you something else different when you when you when you off camera really? yeah yeah and and, and uh, oh. yeah yeah it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a funny old show but what i was not prepared for was the love for that show the amount of people that oh. watched that show i because i've done it it was years ago when i done it and uh, you know it's, you are in a strictly bubble you are in a strictly bubble, but um, there was moments of real fun and joy. And I met I met Mark Foster, who will be a friend forever. And what was your favourite dance? Um, it was the waltz. The waltz. The waltz and and it was Viennese waltz. Viennese waltz. Yeah. And um, I love a bit of salsa. Bit of salsa. Mm. Bit of Latin. I'm still I'm still doing salsa. Okay, fantastic. Mm. Podcast radio. Let's um, move to your solo career now and um, your first album, Proud, which was also uh, a single. That must have been a very important moment for you, really, your first solo album. It was important for me because um, I I didn't join a band and sing because I thought I was going to be famous and make a lot of money. And, you know, I had some success. I'm never going to be the richest singer out there. But you don't want to be complacent. You don't want... And... I just wanted to see if I could do something on my own, write for my own voice, and what kind of voice and what kind of material would come out, me on my own. So it was um, exploratory, and I felt to myself, I owed it to myself, and I had to remember why I was doing music, you know, and, and that if you are not feeling challenged that you must take yourself out of that situation because people are like, oh, my goodness, but aren't people successful? And I say, yeah, it's successful on certain levels but you can't just measure your success and that was what Proud was about you can't just measure your success by the outward things that people think about you and if you've got a few shekels in the bank and it just it wasn't enough it wasn't enough and so Proud was about remembering why I sang remembering what my own ethos for life was and getting on and doing it and you sort of built a relationship there with the British Olympics, and then that was renewed again in 2012, and that song was a very important part of that whole Olympic relationship you had. It, yes, because the director said he would, do the, he would direct the, the video for them, but only if Proud was the sound bed. So they sent me the video, and with Proud as the sound bed, was abs- I wouldn't have turned them down anyway, but after seeing it, there was absolutely no, no way. way. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought, you know, I've co-written this song, but watching it here with, with these pe- extraordinary people doing, you know, pushing human endeavour to the, to the nth degree, and that it was going to be the bid for 2012 to come to the UK. That's achievement. To. That's achievement. I had to yeah. say yes, because... I felt they deserved, these, these, these Olympians, Paralympians, they deserved having their Olympics in their hometown. And, you know, there's always that home factor as well. And I knew that once it came, the British public would support it. And it was glorious. I mean, even the weather played ball. So um, what can you say? I, I was, I was honoured. I was honoured to be um, part of that bid. And it was amazing, wasn't it, the Olympics? I went to both the Paralympics and the main Olympics. And, wow, what, what a feeling it had for the UK. I managed to get tickets to see Usain Bolt with my son. Oh, that must be amazing. Oh, my goodness. Everybody, he must have loved it too. Wow. Everybody in the stadium was Jamaican. It was... And, you know, when you see somebody who can unify people like that, you know, transcends their sport, their um, everyday career, 
and is able to unify people like that. Special, really, really quite special. And everybody was um, rooting for him. And we, we saw him win and, you know, we saw... It was just a moment. It was just a moment I will never, never forget. So, yeah, uh, the, the Olympics and Paralympics, it's a joy. Private Lives with Paul Robinson on East London Radio. There's children who are at primary school that want to take pictures with me because they sing proud at assembly like every Friday or something. And that has been... And like I say, you know, it's the same thing when you talk about Usain Bolt to unify. And I think there's, that's the one song... And it's unified so many different types of people and it just goes to show we are all the same. Like you say, from school children to queer as folk, to choirs, you know, religious communities. And um, so I'm, I'm really happy about that. Yeah. Now what's lovely about your work now, Heather, as well as still recording, as you told me earlier, you're doing a lot of work for charity. You always have done a lot of work, work mm-hmm. for charity, mm-hmm. but now you're particularly doing work with homelessness and you just opened a new shelter. Well, um, it's a foundation that was started off by Jenny Roberts, who unfortunately lost her brother to homelessness on the streets of the UK. And it's very traumatic for her. It's, you know, it's very painful. But through that trauma and pain, she said that I will not let my brother die in vain. And she started off homeless worldwide. And she had a single recorded, and that's how I got to meet Jenny. So we all went down. It was three days of recording. She managed to bag a studio, get um, Pete Kirtley involved as the producer. She's indomitable. She does not... If I don't take no, trust me, she really don't take no. Two peas out of the pod, aren't you? You two. (laughs) We make a good team. You too. (laughs) So I went to do the recording and just everything about her and her endeavour just touched me. You know, it was just so pure. And also you could see the pain of it. But she wasn't going to let her brother die in vain, and she started this foundation. And I've just been with her from since recording the single. I've said, you know, I met her, and I just thought anything she wants that I can deliver, I will do. And I really believed in her, and I believed that she would, she would put this foundation on the map. And you know, she's done so in a very, very short space of time. And we were offered some homes, and so we went down to open the first one in South Shields. So we went to open a um, homeless worldwide home in South Shields and it was amazing because, you know, we've had such a warmth and love from the community and I would say the public at large because there is a problem. It is huge. And, you know, we're just a little foundation. We're looking now for sponsorship and donations. But whatever we do... we we will do it with all our heart and with all our, with all our might because it is a huge problem. And it's not just us. We wanted Homeless Worldwide to be an umbrella to say to people that there is a situation that if we all join together, and I'm talking big business, I'm talking local government, local councils and charities, that there is a solution. There is a solution. There are so many properties that are empty and like we've been in talks now with somebody who's, who has a property and wants us to take it over and we're looking at all the... Because, you know, homelessness, you can be homeless for so many reasons and we're not so naive that we will just jump into a situation. You know, the home that's opened, there are staff on site and people have issues, whether it be drug-related, drink, alcohol or just um, being 
so used to being on the streets that being in a home is now very difficult. So when we open the homes, we also want the people to be really looked after, really cared for. You know, it has to be a safety net because if you've been on the streets for any amount of time, you're vulnerable. And, and we don't more shelters going to come, do you think? I mean, you're going to find some more houses like the South Shields one. Yeah, we've Fantastic. got two more. Two more. Um, going so you're to going to continue opened. to be involved with this? Definitely. I, I have been asked, um, Jenny has asked me to be, and I will be, a director. So oh, that's I've wonderful. Been, I've, yes, I'm a director, and, you know, the charity is, is a, our charity. What's nice about that is you're using your name and your experience to help people less fortunate than yourself. That's a great thing to do. You know... Yeah, I think when I, you know, when you say less fortunate, they they are less fortunate in some ways. But I would always well, use the term. Times, yeah, reason, I would always say. They? Yeah, I would People always say vulnerable. Vulnerable. And, okay. and you know, we're all vulnerable in certain ways. And I know because I don't want people to think that I'm some some kind of no, do good. No, everyone needs a roof over their head. We all yes, and you know what? Yes. That should be a basic. That basic. should be a basic. I don't yes. care who you are, where you are, yeah. a roof over your head. Is, is, is a basic, is a staple for life yeah. because it gives security and you, you're less vulnerable and you feel, like I was saying before, it all filters into this being part of a community and where the houses are, the, there are they are a part of the community. The, the police come to check on them, not about what they're doing, right. but f- that they are happy. Important that difference, they, yes. There is a difference, mm. especially when you're used to the police coming after you or coming for you in a certain way where you're and you're and and it hasn't been um a simpatico kind of relationship right. to know that they are on your side and that you know you have somebody um within the police force that will look after you, you can call up that you can speak to the councillors and we've got two great people yeah. who look after the home and is there a website for more details nigel and vicky nigel and vicky yeah they are absolutely amazing they work so hard you know we have much love for them and they do it you know it's like a vocation for them and this is what we want we want people who feel that it's 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 more it's not a job for me this is being vocation a direct, is, vocation's the word isn't it it's yeah. a vocation so is there a website with more detail yes there is it's called homelessworldwide.org uk we need sponsorship and we need donations so anything helps all right if you're listening please help Thanks to Heather Small, Peter Straker and Cleo Rockus. All of life there from hair to music to cocktails. This has been the Private Lives Podcast from East London Radio. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Robinson. There'll be more Private Lives very soon on Podcast Radio. From East London to the whole of London on Podcast Radio. We are East London Radio. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.